Hi, my name is Shaman Foy, and I'm here with my co-host, Eva Potts, and you are listening to the Charles Benet Syndrome podcast. Today's special guest is Irvin Harris. So how's everybody doing today? I'm good. That's me, Irvin. Doing well. Thank you, Shaman. Oh, that's great. We're so glad to have you with us uh, today, Irvin. We would like to discuss a little bit about your eye condition, if you don't mind starting there and tell me what eye condition you have and how long you've had and, and about your vision over the years. I was diagnosed with macular degeneration. It was wet 10 years ago. I went through maybe two or three years of injections and it became dry, which it now is. Um, I have no direct vision in front of me. I have pretty good peripheral vision. One of the first things that happened when this happened to be my partner, Joyce, quite brilliant, gave me a white cane. So <laughs> I started using it. Now, I'm in a retirement community, and we have a VIP, visually impaired persons support group. About 25 members meet monthly. I haven't been able to persuade one of them to use a white cane. Very frustrating. I don't know you have come across that or not? Yes. Yeah. Certainly have. My mother uh, refused to use hers when she was completely blind. Yeah. Well, okay, we don't need to dwell on it, but since that's just a bit of background, extra information. So that's that's my eye history. Okay. And has that white cane helped you? Absolutely. People don't believe it. I mean, I speed around the streets of this community. I know them, I've walked enough times, but I use the cane so I don't walk into anything and my peripheral vision lets me know where I am. That's great. That's great to hear. I'm glad it's working out. Have you had any formal training or did you just, are you self-taught with your, uh, with the cane? Um, no, I've had, I went to uh, the Lighthouse um, School for the Blind and that's quite a story. I resisted the idea of going to school, but I'm glad I tried it and didn't miss a class after that. It was very valuable. That I mean, wow. I came, that comes under the heading of mobility, mm-hmm. which includes crossing a four-way traffic line on the major street. It's unnerving, but there is a way to do it, and that's what I was taught to do. Mobility training, lots of ang- angles to that. I don't really need to dwell on that, putting little buttons on on equipment to know what important things are that you can't see. Okay. Wow. I think that's really important, actually, uh, Irvin, because many of our um, support group members, and I'm sure many people with Charles Benet syndrome, especially if their vision loss is later in life, they're probably going to be resistant to learning and or relearning how to see without vision, correct? I mean, yes. how to, how to uh, navigate their environment, their community. And that's really important because when you have Charles Benet syndrome, it's isolation enough. And being able to navigate where you are is a very helpful thing, I believe, when you have Charles Benet. Yes, and one should always look for the local school for the blind. They offer classes. Uh, they 
funded primarily by the government. Uh, they supplement that in most cases with their own fundraising events. And um, I do recommend give it a try. You'll probably find it's valuable. So what would you say, Urban, to someone that is reluctant to use a cane or reluctant to get the training to use it properly? Uh, what, what would you say to them? I give up. I tried and tried and tried. And it falls on deaf ears. There are all sorts of reasons why they don't want to do it. For example, you probably know this. For example, uh, they're ashamed of the fact that they're blind. Crazy, right? Um, mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. heard everything. I've heard, well, that makes me an easier victim for someone to rob. Looking for negatives. It, the pluses are immense, and I just, I don't know if they still teach it in schools. I go, I walk along, and I assume that people coming towards me <laughs> will move out of the way or stop. Very often they will, but quite often they just don't get it. In fact, somebody said, what's that for? Okay. There is this lack of, um, it seems recently in, in our social circles, our environment, just out in the general public, I've noticed a lack of compassion, understanding each other, or, um, you know, this guy's walking with a cane. Why, you know, oh, he's, you know, he's probably blind. It seems at a certain point, empathy for another individual and what they're going through has seemed to dissipate, uh, in our society. And I think that that's part of the problem. And I think culturally we're not teaching that like we used to. And I believe if you have good values and, and uh, you were reared correctly, you would know that. But there's a lot of entitlement lately that kind of offshoots that. I don't want to get off track there, but you're right. My mom said the same thing. I'm an easy target. Um, I'm, I'm ashamed. And I would say, I'd say to her, why? There's nothing to be ashamed of because you have low vision or she eventually did go blind. But I'm so happy to hear you encourage people to go to get that help because that is one of the first things someone should do is reach out to services for the blind in the area that they're in. Yes, absolutely. Obviously, we're going to talk about Charles Bonet, but I don't want to let this opportunity pass us by without asking another question. So you said there's many positive benefits that come from using a cane that outweigh the negatives. Have you experienced any of the negatives that people typically say, like becoming a target or, no. or anybody? No, okay, you, you, have. Have, you have to understand. I'm relatively tall. People don't want to tangle with me particularly. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not typical in that respect. I recognize that. I mean, I am I'm familiar with the ADA, American with Disabilities Act, and hopefully most people who are visually impaired are aware of that. It's very good protection for us. I know, mm -hmm. for example, that if I go into a store with my white cane and need help, they are required, and they don't mind. I've gone into some places, and the manager comes out and helps me. Um, I'll take another extreme example. Traffic is, is required by law to stop anywhere, not to crossing anywhere with somebody white cane. I'm not shy, and I've told to use it, you have to hold it out horizontally in front of you and then put it back down. 
I've found traffic will stop if I need to cross the road. And I won't move until they've stopped. And they're courteous and thank them. But you need to know you need to know your rights. And it's one thing for someone that is not visually impaired to tell someone, hey, I think you should try a cane. It could be helpful. And another thing for someone that actually has a visual impairment to tell them firsthand experiences, the benefits of a cane and to not be ashamed. So uh, we appreciate you sharing that, Urban. Shimon, what you asked was a very great question. And Irvin, we had a guest on the support group, and I'm sorry that you missed him. His name was David the Blind Poet. And he actually wrote a poem about the cane. And he's from the UK. Uh, We had him on as a guest with a support group, and I think it really helped change the perspective of the people in group about using their cane. Contacting him or maybe if you have a way in your VIP sessions in your community of bringing something up online for them to look at, he's very inspiring. Would you drop me and, a note? Would you drop me a note about him? Absolutely, Irvin, I will. And and I also was uplifting, and and the reason it's so important that you're on this podcast is because what you're saying, what you're delivering in your message to people who are low vision or visually impaired is not to be ashamed and to go get that help. And um, that's so important. Thank you. You haven't asked much about me, but it may be obvious by now that I didn't start my life in this country. I bring that up only because I'm told that schools used to teach the white king. Um, I haven't seen much of it, and I don't even know if it still happens. Um, so I, I, I don't know whether it did happen, has been dropped, or never happened. It's a shame. The public should know what it's all about, what a white cane means. I think, unfortunately, um, Irvin, in this country, most people are not overly familiar with ADA standards. Yeah. Um, there are so many people with, with tons of uh, physical or mental disabilities that are not uh, treated properly uh, in public. They, and it's very tough for them to, um, to, to insist. Pardon? Insist. Yes, thank you. That's the word I was looking for, to insist on their rights being honored. Um, You know, for for instance, somebody with a, you know, with a physical disability trying to walk into a building that's not accessible, you know, or somebody in a wheelchair that can't get in because it's not accessible. And it's as as if people don't care, and they should, because um, it's not inclusive, and it should be. Well, I can only reiterate the importance of looking for a support group. A blind schools will normally have their own support groups. Mm-hmm. And you get so much information from speakers, from each other, uh, about equipment, about techniques, all of that. Wow. Yeah. And I grew up in New Jersey in the 80s and 90s and in the public school system, at least. And I was never taught about the, uh, the white cane. So mm-hmm. what about you, Eva? You're a little older than me and you lived in different regions and different places. Have you ever been taught about the white cane? No, sir. Not until, I mean, it wasn't, a, it was self, self-education. The first time I saw someone with a cane and my mother had to inform me what it meant. And then, you know, as what was surprising 
we were in such a rural area when my mother was losing her vision and it was a constant battle to get anybody to help my mother with, with her visual impairment. It took forever to get a magnifying glass that was conducive to her, her vision loss. And the cane finally arrived. Um, the only thing my mother didn't appreciate was the clock that constantly kept going off. Uh, there was a clock that made a sound and that went airborne. Um, but no, I wasn't taught anything about any type of, uh, yeah, compassion or empathy for people with, uh, physical, mental disabilities in school. So urban, it probably depends on the region that you're from in, in the States and the time period, too, not, but that's very interesting. I thought you would have picked up by now. I'm not from the States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, cause you were saying that people in the States were taught this, right? Or were you referring to people in England being taught about the, the cane? I wasn't blind, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, that's very interesting. Were you but, taught about that in school, Irvin? Say again? In, in the UK, when you were in the UK, was it taught to you in school? No. Yeah. Hopefully I that think changed. a lot of things changed in the over the years. I think the late 60s and 70s were a big time for ADA regulations, but I could be wrong about that. Um, I know that's when a lot of fair housing and that type of thing came into play. But uh, yeah, it's a shame it's not taught. Maybe somebody out there in the education system will hear this podcast and say, hmm, you know, that's a pretty good point. We don't teach our children that will be anything cool. about this. I would add them one little thing that occurs to me a little story might just help that is i joined a uh, i belonged to a, a a group like a lions group it wasn't lions but it was similar to that kiwanis and there was a, an elderly gentleman there when i joined didn't know much about him but i did understand he was blind i could see he was blind and pretty deaf and then I learned that he was ex-CIA. You never know. And that he had also, before he'd lost his sight, owned the local newspaper. And when he told me, you need to go to a blind school, I thought, yeah, right. <laughs> but to humor him, I, went, I found there were a series of courses. I went to one just for the experience to say I did it. I did not miss one twice a week, I think for the following eight weeks. I think at the end, one of the exercises involved learning to bake a cake. Wow. But I'm glad I did that. It was so helpful. Amazing. Anyway, wow. Charles Bonnet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so you were saying that you have macular, wet macular degeneration, and now it's it's progressed to uh, maybe with treatment to dry. Yes. But, and it was about maybe, in my understanding, 10 years ago. So at what time did you start exhibiting symptoms of Charles Monet? Um, well, I didn't know it. Looking back, probably three or four years ago, when I started seeing... Um, checkerboard patterns, and I'm seeing them right now. On the wall, it's dark light, it happens to be greenish, doesn't matter, it picks up the color. Dark light, dark light, dark light. And in my head, I thought, oh, that makes sense, because I was very addicted to chess. Nah, picking that up. Didn't think that much about it. 
things did not become <laughs> didn't get seriously interesting until um, I have to be a bit available, 12 to 18 months ago, I would say. And I started to see a specific picture. It was of a, a grassy patch, and there was a road alongside it. And on the other side, there was a pretty house with a red roof. My mind immediately said, oh, I've been in America for 50 years but I grew up in England and my business career started in England and my mind said oh that's a village green I'd seen village greens I mean I didn't identify with a specific one but that's what it said and it was pleasant enough and then it extended itself to two more houses also with red roofs interesting and then it became an estate of houses with red roofs and i said interesting as i was growing up i really wanted to be an architect and i thought huh, this makes sense <laughs> and people who asked me to draw it or do it i can't do that that estate was really pleasant to look at. And I identified one of the houses. I don't mean physically identified. It said to me, that is the house, the first house you lived in when you first got married. On that corner, just the roads like that, that configuration. And then I suppose the next thing was, there were no people, but then people started emerging. And there was a road, I was looking at a road, seemed to be up a hill, and then curved to the right and went in front of all of these houses. And then people started, a crowd started walking down towards me. And that was okay. It was interesting. They were middle-aged. I don't think I saw many young ones or very old ones, but occasionally i would see one and i said oh that's so and so that was my ex-father-in-law and i can't say it physically looked like that do you know what i mean yes i can just mm -hmm. that's what i how i interpreted it or my brain interpreted it and even then i was not particularly disconcerted that was stage one However, stage two became much more interesting. I was now looking at a street, and there were lots of people walking up and down the street, mostly walking towards me. There were some vehicles and some cyclists and stuff like that. And I'm looking at it, and it said to me, that's a street that makes me think of a street I know in London. I know precisely what I'm taught, where I'm discussing it. And I said, but <laughs> here comes the fun part. I said, well, if it's in London, why aren't there any London buses? And lo and behold, <laughs> I get full of London buses, you know, double-decker red buses. Yes. And the interesting thing was they were old models, not old, but <laughs> uh, 
50s, 40s, 50s models. I know that now they're much more streamlined, but there were no, no modern ones there. Uh, incidentally, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Scott at... Um, from Australia. Australia. Yeah, I talk to him a lot. And as you know, he's a psychologist and we've discussed this a lot. And one thing began me intriguing. I wonder what control I have. And I tested myself one day and I, I was terribly devoted and involved with a, an Australian shepherd dog called Molly. Uh, I had had her since my my second wife died, and he she had been my companion for many many years, and she passed away when she was sixteen. And I said I'd like to see Molly, <laughs> and there she was. In fact, the first time I saw her, it was a little distressing because I thought to myself, "Oh, she looks like she's wandering around looking for me." I don't know exactly at what point I decided I need to get a view on this and I called my retina specialist, an ophthalmologist. I called his office and I said, I need to see him. They said, well, he's very booked. He's two or three months out. Um, we do have a triage department, I could refer you to them and they can override the calendar if they want to. Okay, so what's your problem? So I gave her a brief description and day so late I got a call back from the triage department who said, sorry, he can't help you. You've got Charles Bonnet syndrome. <laughs> that was quite her. Um, That's a typical response. Say again? Yeah, that sounds to be from everyone in support group and from our own experience with Charles Benet and our mother, that seems to be the typical response from an ophthalmologist. At least that ophthalmologist knew what you had. Some don't even know. Correct, Shimon. Uh, Very good point. I mean, this is this is the challenge. I think you're trying to tackle it. I think Scott is trying to try it. It's, mm -hmm. it's a shame that the professions, medical, neurology, relevant professions don't know about it. I have talked, I've reached out to neurologists, I've reached out to a psychiatrist, no idea what I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah. You are so on target, Irvin. It is frustrating. Um, and I'll try and do the cliff note version. We had to go to the UK through Judith Potts, no relation to me, with Esme's umbrella to get to Dr. Cusick here in the United States to talk to my mother. And I think it's, that's the motivation as one of the motivators behind this nonprofit as well is to give resources here in the United States. I'm all for it. Anyway, I can help you. Let me know, but I'm all for Thank it. Thank you, Urban. But, but you're right. It is, I told you I have a priority passion, which we may or may not get to. Which, oh, oh, please tell us about that, Irvin. Irvin, please tell us about your your passion. We'd love to know. Well, here's a little story. It's all on my website. But the story is that I had a very busy life. 
Um, I had a very busy business career, and ultimately it morphed into wanting to do things for others, particularly starting with involvement with kids. There's an organization called the Variety Club. Not too many people have heard of it. Um, and it sets out to help underprivileged kids. That's the phrase they used when the, I got into it to start with. And the beauty is it is supported by the entertainment world. I mean, we had Danny Kaye fly to England, to, to Manchester, where I was in England, for two days to conduct our orchestra to raise money. And wow. we had other, many other incidents. But I spent 10 years. I started a committee. And after 10 years, I actually was moving to the States. And I felt that was the most satisfying thing I'd done in my life. Gave me greatest satisfaction uh, with apologies, apologies to my neglected children. I was a workaholic in business. <laughs> I dropped my voice. I'm sorry. Did you hear what I said? No, we did. We did. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, it translated into me asking, why are the kids in that situation? Asking myself. And the answer was, Surprise, surprise, inadequate parenting. Just to use two words, I could use other words, uninformed parenting, un whatever. And that, to me, was the biggest challenge. Parents have no pre real preparation. I got involved with an organization called Preparing Tomorrow's Parents. I got involved with all sorts of areas. And I also got involved with a couple of programs, one I particularly admired called Challenge Day, um, which still exists, um, that attempts to really educate kids in uh, probably ninth and tenth grades when they're a little bit malleable and give them some real character training and development and responsibility. Uh, essentially, it's an incredible operation. But so I, I was involved with quite a few things like that. Uh, I was single. I was I was a widow. Was I or was I a widower? I was. <laughs> I think I was a widower, right? And yes. And I kept myself. I was very very busy. Um, because of that, <laughs> a little side issue about me. I reckon the only way I was going to be able to slow myself down was to have a companion of some sort. And I signed up for eHarmony. You may or may not have heard of that. And that's how I met my present partner. We've been together for 14 years. Her name is Joyce. And um, we both think that organization is fantastic. The way they go about getting people matched, I suppose, is the word. Anyway, um, when I was diagnosed and could no longer go out and drive or <laughs> use the computer at that time, uh, as a matter of interest, I made a really terrible mistake. 
There was one morning when Joyce had an appointment and I was supposed to get a haircut, a 10-minute drive, and I thought, oh, I can do this. And that's when I totaled the car. I should have stopped one day earlier. If that advice is helpful to anybody, <laughs> so be it. Yeah. So now my life comes to a screeching halt. For once, I have nothing else to do but stop and think. And I started thinking about the help I had tried to offer. And I said, you know what? This is my phrase to myself. I've been putting on Band-Aids. I haven't solved any problems. And then I started to go through the process. I started writing. Uh, and I, I was thought I was creating a story. And I tried to envisage what the world could be like if we learned all the lessons we could from the past. And that ultimately has become part of my website. The website Saving Humanity actually tries to set out logically my thought processes. I believe if we learn from the past, there's a lot of lessons. I think humanity has made some terrible decisions in the way it's organized. I'm not going to go on further. <laughs> if you want to read about it, you can. At the end of this Saving Humanity Net, there is a link to the story I started with, which sets out a possible scenario that things could work out for the best. And my intention is not to say this is how it should be done, but we need to think about it. We need to come up, here's some ways, come up with better ways. But if we are to control our future, humanity, we better get on with it. That's interesting. So you're actually, that sounds, that sounds great. So you're actually an author. I wrote. Would you, would you, <laughs> consider, would you consider yourself an author? What? You would consider yourself an author? No. Okay. I never thought of it. <laughs> never thought of it. I'm a bad one. I'm not a great writer. So you have a bunch of short stories on there, like blog posts or something like that, uh, no, telling the, no, the it's story? it's a continuous story. It's, it's based on the concept that used to be my granddaughter, um, but she resented my using her name, so the name changed. But in my mind, I thought, okay, so here we have, and there are other women out there inspire me, young women, 16s and 17-year-olds. We know about them around the world, from Sweden, from back in India, from wherever. And I wrote this story on the basis of this young lady saying to herself, my God, what future have we got? The world is going crazy, climate change, wars, and new technology. As it progressed, I even included uh, artificial intelligence as a potential threat and a potential mm -hmm. tool for good. But who controls these things? These things are controlled by people who want to make money. So, that sounds, so she, that sounds tried, great. she tried to write this story and she enlisted the, her grandfather. <laughs> Where did I get that idea from? And she enlisted other people 
And they came up and decided the first thing they decided, I decided, was from my background and my experience, if you want to achieve something, you better specify it. You need a vision of where you want to be. If you don't know where you're going to go, you're not going to go anywhere. And there's biblical references to that too. And my favorite, favorite, favorite comparison is John F. Kennedy, 1960. He said, and it's on my website, the words are there. But in a nutshell, he said, we are going to land a man on the moon and bring him back safely by the end of this decade. And we did. And we did because we were inspired by the concept and all the resources were brought forward to achieve it and it was done. So he, yeah, he has the core needs. He has a vision, clearly inspiring vision, and he has a timetable. You need that. And then, based on that, you can start developing your plans. And so that's how my story evolved. It goes on to talk about getting a vision. It comes up with a, a suggested vision for people to improve on. And it goes on to say how, what the goal was and how it was achieved. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing the website. I'll check it out, and I'm sure some of the listeners will will check it out too. It's 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 so good to have a passion and things that that keep you interested and that you keep working toward. And um, it's great that you found something that you're passionate about. So thank you for sharing that that with us. Thank you for that comment. Yeah, it is great. Uh, I, I was thinking about what you told us. You said when you first started noticing Charles Bonnet before you even knew what it was, you were saying that there was a house with a with a red roof and then it kind of got larger and larger. When you would see that house with the red roof, were you sitting inside of your own current home or would this be when you were outside you would notice this this vision or hallucination? No, it could be anywhere. I can look at the houses now as we talk. Um and funny things happen to them as they over hedges in front. And sometimes those hedges turn into a train going by. Uh, it seems like I've got my own movies. Um, have they frightened me? I have not let them frighten me. There were a couple of occasions when some of the crowd coming towards me seemed to be dressed in a hood and gray and stuff like that. And I just looked, I just let that go. It didn't get to me. So how did you do that? How did you, did you let things go and let things not frighten you, especially when you didn't know what was happening at that time? You didn't know about Charles Bonnet syndrome. I'm talking about more recently when I do know. I know, okay. I know they're not real, but I must admit, I was in one of our VIP meetings and some of these people from my vision came into the room. <laughs> and as they're walking along, I was very tempted. I couldn't resist putting, they were smaller, putting my hand down to see if anybody touched. Of course they didn't. <laughs> that was game playing, if you like. 
So how did you tell your uh your partner about it? Uh you said Joyce is, is your um is is your is she your girlfriend? She's your wife? My life partner. Your life partner. Um uh, and you said her name is Joyce, right? Yes. Uh so did you tell Joyce about these this Charles Bonet uh, or your your things that you were experiencing in the early days? Um I probably did, but here's one other factor which is really interesting. I have a wonderful therapist, a psychologist, uh, who's been uh, with me for seven or eight years. There was an incident that happened seven or eight years ago, and I needed some help along those lines. And she is fantastic. In fact, she is intrigued by the whole concept of Charles Bonnet. And she's the one who went out and found a website in Australia. Um, and she's intrigued that I'm part of a, a discussion group, um, which I have not been a very good attendee at, but still, um, that's helped me a lot. We can talk about quite a lot. Well, I'm sorry to mean to interrupt. Uh, how refreshing to hear that this therapist is intrigued by Charles Binet. Is she educating herself? On Charles yeah. Binet syndrome. Yes, and she was not unfamiliar with the, with the, with the name when it first came up. Oh, okay, that's even more encouraging. But yeah. were were you one of her very first clients with the with the condition? I don't know. It's probably hard. Yeah, probably hard to know because of the confidentiality reasons. Well, uh, true. Some, some, sometimes, sometimes they do say, "Well, I've I've heard of this," and and they won't give you the details, but. She put me in touch with Scott and I've been giving her more and more feedback as I learn more about myself and about the, about the whole thing. So she's Wonderful. a great asset. <laughs> yeah. And you, and, you, and you live in Florida, correct, Irvin? I do, yes. You do, okay. This is good to know. This is great information. It's, it's anytime Shimon and I hear that a, a medical or mental health professional is on board with learning about Charles Binet, it's like, yay, one person, at least one person's out there trying to learn more about Charles Binet syndrome. That's encouraging. Yeah. Irvin, so, can I, may I ask you a question? And, and you don't have to answer it if, if you don't want to, but I'm very curious, just from listening to your story and the progression of your Charles Binet syndrome and what you do now, and it's so great to hear that somebody with Charles Binet syndrome, you try not to let it be a fear event uh, and not be fear-based with it. And I think that part of the problem is a lot of fear-based people, it's more severe for them. Yeah. And you continue to follow your passion and you continue to do your work. And that's very encouraging. What did you do, um, if you don't mind asking, as a profession, as a young man growing up, and, and then you got into working with children, how did, how did all that evolve? I um, was born in London, in the heart of London. And uh, you can work out my age because in 1939, I was six, and that was when the war started. Mm -hmm. And so for a couple of years, I had that Ukraine experience of living in underground in air raid shelters. And if you've read about it, 
you'll know about the thousands of waves of bombers that came over and the fact the fires that remained. A house was hit. I did move, my family moved to a, a nice city called Worcester. This is in England still, not in Massachusetts. Worcester, very great history. I was fortunate enough to get involved or get into a school that had been founded in the 12th century. And um, I spent my whole schooling at this one school, Worcester Royal Grammar School. And when I was 16, I had reached the education stage, uh, but by Oxford Cambridge standards that would allow me to enter university, but it was 1949. And because of the returning soldiers and everything else, there were no available um, places for anybody until you were 18. And I did not want to continue with school for the sake of it, so I became uh, an, an article clerk uh, to, to become an accountant. I was, I was article to a professional accountant, a member of the chartered accountant, and I was slave labor for five years, I think a dollar a week, and I learned a hell of a lot. And I, I did all my theory by no internet. It was all by correspondence courses. Can you picture it? You get tests, you send them off, they come back with comments a few days later. So that was that was what happened. By the time I had become qualified as an accountant, I was bored to tears. I thought, this is, this is no good. I want to do something productive, not check on other people's work. And I got myself into a, a large corporation as an internal auditor. I was well qualified to do that. And I finished up. Uh, I finished up as chief executive of a very large division of a public company. Uh, and in the process, I'm obviously creative. I was a marketing vice president. And then I pointed out that we had thousands of clerks and uh, no calculators. And I'd been to the States and seen the use of computers and Sears and Wards, people like that. And so they said, good, well, you're an accountant, you're the youngest person on this board, you're now in charge of IT. <laughs> so that was my next step. It was marvelous, installing a system that brought everything so much up to date. And at one point in that career, I can't remember exactly when, probably in 62, 63 maybe, my secretary said, there's a gentleman here who wants to like to see you. I said, I haven't got an appointment. And she said, I know, but his name is, as it was, John Golfer. Oh, I know John. Yes, well, he's come up from London specifically to take a few minutes with you, please. Sure. And he told me about the Variety Club and that it was all over the world. And in England, there was a very big organization in London. And they had realized that they needed to arrange for involvement around the country and wanted me to start 
a first regional committee and I went backwards and forwards in my mind and eventually there were pros exceeded the cons I did as I say it was the most incredible experience I got so many wonderful people involved in the committee we raised money we took kids on out to the seaside did all sorts of things and very satisfying and then in 1974, we decided to move to the States. Um, we had made friends through the Variety Club and other connections. And we just, <laughs> the quick answer is, why did you do it? And we said, because it was a better life. We were really impressed with the attitude to work and play that we come across. And 1974 in England, pre-Thatcher, was really bad. The unions were dominant. Majority of operations were nationalized and run by the government. And it was really a depressing environment and not stimulating as America appeared to be. Looking back, would I make the same decision now if I knew about the gun practices? <laughs> Maybe not. But that's an aside. So we came to the States, and uh, I continued. I had business involvements, but I, as you understand, I got into a lot of other areas. Does that help? Oh, what, a, what an amazing uh, background and, and very intriguing that you always wanted to be an architect. And I often wonder, you know, sometimes um, you hear people who have Charles Benet syndrome that experienced any kind of wartime activity. My mother was plagued with those type of hallucinations. Um, mm. She was about your age um, or would have been your age. Um, so she, uh, she, she would see a lot and, and a lot of correlation with her hallucinations to the, to the war and uh, the blackouts in the city. Ooh. She was in Jersey City. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's intriguing to hear somebody's background. It's intriguing to hear where they come from and then how that, how it can affect your hallucinations. Because I believe a lot of it comes from memory. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional or a mental health professional, but a lot of people say that a lot of it comes from memory. You're talking about the double decker buses and wanting to be an architect and watching an estate go up in front of you. It's, it's intriguing to me how that, that part of the brain gets stimulated to give you those type of hallucinations. I have no doubt about it, Emma. No yeah. doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Can you give me maybe some tips that you use to help you with Charles Bonnet and maybe some advice that you would share for someone else that has Charles Bonnet? I try and I do try to relax. And I try to... If something bothers me, I think of something else. I, I do some yoga. I know how to relax to a great extent. And I guess I have reasonable control of my mind, of what I choose, what I choose to uh, notice. I, what notice I choose to take of it, of my brain. We always do that. We get input. 
and we see somebody, <laughs> I'm talking about with vision, we do the same thing. We see somebody who is not like us, and we start a little process about, oh, I don't think I want to get involved, or maybe I should get involved. And I think, again, we get information from our brain and we have to make our decisions based on that. So I guess I am able to choose. So far, so good. I'll call you back if I have a, a problem in the next couple of hours. <laughs> That's very interesting, though, Irvin, that you feel like you can control that, the decision about whether or not to allow that hallucination to control you or, or that visual stimulation to seep into your everyday life. That's really interesting and important for other people to hear because one of the, of course, you know, from being in the support group, one of the struggles and challenges that people have in the support group or anybody with Charles Bonet, I would imagine, is getting to the point of realizing that the hallucinations are not real and that you're not crazy and that you've not gone mad. Absolutely. And yeah. That's important. Once yeah. you understood what the Charles Bonet was, did yeah. that help you understand that you were not going mad or that oh my you were God, not? Yes. So the more, I, the more I was fortunate, I was able to get a lot of information. And yeah. it's, it's fascinating information. Yes, I fully understand that. And one thing I'm, I'm realizing is that we can't always control what happens to us, but we can only control how we respond to it. And it was, to me, pretty powerful when you said, I'm seeing the patterns right now in the middle of this interview and you could have gotten angry. You could have, you could have gotten upset. You could have canceled the interview, but you're continuing on with the interview. You're continuing on with your life. You stayed calm and now the patterns may be gone or maybe they're not, but you learn how to live with it and cope with it. So I think that's very important. And I just wanted to highlight that. So good, good. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. Well, I hope this has been helpful and thank you very much for inviting me.